0: maybe a few decades ago, folks would have looked to the federal government for direction. The reality is no, no one's waiting for the federal government to act on these, these things, uh, the, you know, in the true incubator, incubator model. Th- these ideas are coming from states.
1: Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. We are proudly sponsored by Odyssey Advisors, Build America Mutual, Muni Pro, and the Government Finance Officers Association. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined by my intrepid co host, Marylander, winter weather survivor, bona fide fiscal policy mm-hmm. expert, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back.
2: Thanks Justin. The uh, the snow actually landed lasted much longer than I I predicted it it would. So there's there's that excitement, but our our winter activities as of late for me anyway have been cookie baking and we have a um our tradition for for um Christmas time is to bake gingerbread cookies of course, but uh we have Star Wars cookie cutters and so we 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 make gingerbread Star Wars Star Wars cookies and it started a number of years ago when I made the batter to to make cookies. And then realized we only had a single Christmas-related <laughs> um, cookie cutter <laughs> in our collection. So, but we had a ton of Star Wars ones, which says a lot about <laughs> us. Um, so I used the Star Wars ones instead, and, and it's a, it's it's stuck. You could say
1: that Star Wars <laughs> captures the holiday spirit as well as anything. I think there's, a, there's an argument to be made. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do remember uh, last year when around this time when we were uh, interviewing Beth Goldberg at the time at this, the city of Kirkland, and she was talking about how she was about to finish the episode and then go do her uh, annual uh, ritual of baking Rugula for for the holiday. So, you know, we, oh, we, yeah. we cover all these things on the public money pod. It's very uh, all inclusive <laughs> that way. Terrific. Well, we are continuing today our conversations with state treasurers. This time welcoming uh, to the Public Money Pod, Washington State Treasurer Mike Pellicciotti. Uh, He's been in office uh, for a little over a year now and uh, is going to uh, talk to us about all sorts of interesting things happening in Washington state. Certainly that's a state when you think about uh, kind of cutting edge policy, you think about growth population that's been growing very, very quickly, both within the Puget Sound region, greater Seattle, but also statewide. Uh, you think about major uh, rural urban differences east of the mountains, as I say, east of the Cascade Mountains is a very different place uh, than west of the mountains, east of the mountains, very agricultural, lots of uh, very different topography, very different local economies compared to the sort of tech and manufacturing economy of the, the Western part of the state. Uh, this is a really, really interesting state that way. And in turn, some very interesting public money questions. We hope to get into a, a bunch of different topics with him, um, including the state's debt management, have one of the better funded state pension plans out there and uh, many, many other topics. But one that comes to mind too, right away is why Washington state was one of the first to legalize recreational marijuana. And since then continues to struggle like every state that has legalized recreational marijuana with the question of how to provide financial services to the marijuana industry. The federal government continues to uh, see marijuana as not fully legal uh, in the eyes of federal law. And therefore, if you are a bank and you are taking money providing commercial banking services for an otherwise legal marijuana business, you may in fact be in violation of federal law for moving money that is not necessarily seen as clean money, so to speak. Lots of policy challenges with this, uh, and we hope to get into with him about the way that Washington State has approached this in concert with a few other states. Liz, you've been uh, writing about recreational marijuana and the public money implications of it for some time now. When you think about those challenges and how they've evolved over time, what comes to mind?
2: Yeah, to for sure the, the cash-based business aspect of, of recreational marijuana is the is probably one of the single biggest public finance issues regarding it. I mean, once once you figure out what the tax rate is, it's kind of like next up on the next up on the to-do list. And as more and more states have legalized recreational marijuana, it just continues to now you have more and more states, uh, more and more states where there's these all cash. Businesses and and it's because um, and so there's this been this bill proposed in Congress for a number of years now. I, I pulled up a story of mine from. From early 2019, talking about and this is the bill, the the Safe Banking Act. It was introduced in 2019. It would, preve- it would prevent federal banking regulators from punishing banks for working with legal cannabis businesses because at that time and still today, if you are you if you're a grower or seller, you can't get a bank account for your business. And and I've I've done some other stories on this. I remember talking to folks in um, in California who have to pay for like the armored mm-hmm. vehicles to. Go make their sales tax payments. I mean, just this these things that you would not normal, you just wouldn't think of, and and that by today's standards, sh- for sure, are are very. Cumbersome to deal with. I mean, we're I rarely have cash on me these days, and so we're just everybody's moving away from cash, except for this one piece of the industry that's moving towards it and can't get away from it. And so this definitely is an area where state treasurers, you know, certainly have a role. Uh, back back in 2019, a number of states have talked talked about doing state-run um, banks to serve marijuana businesses specifically, but there was a report from California that came out that said you don't want to stick your neck out that far. So there's just a, a lot of a lot of cash and and a lot of, and it's a lot of public safety risks regarding that. And um, it's something that the states and feds still have yet to to figure out together. Definitely.
1: Yeah the, the, the cash handling and the financial services piece of it is a really, really interesting set of public money questions. Another thing that's been interesting to observe about that industry is the tax regimes and the different ways that states have chosen to tax it, the different ways that they've task state government with tasking it. In some places, it's the uh, the sort of liquor commission. In some places, it's a department of revenue. In some places, they've created an entire new regulatory apparatus to deal specifically with legal marijuana. But one of the challenges that every place that has made it legal is struggling with is how to set the tax rate at a level that generates enough revenue to make mm-hmm. sure that the services that are in place that were promised as a result often of citizen referenda and other legislation enabling legal marijuana, but then also not setting the tax rates so high that you create a disincentive for growers and for buyers. And so it's this really interesting balancing act. And some places have, have really had to go back and, and adjust pretty drastically their state tax rates because they were not getting the response necessarily that they expected to get in the marketplace, and so all of these interesting public money challenges—everything from how to manage the cash to setting the tax rate to regulating—it's uh, been really fascinating to watch this thing kind of literally come from the from the ground up, no pun intended—and we'll need to observe it. And, mm. and states like Washington State will you know, continue to have to deal with all of those attendant challenges. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Washington State Treasurer Mike Pellicciotti. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today.
0: Yeah, it's great to join you, Justin.
2: And yeah, welcome to the pod. Um, happy to continue this treasurer series with uh, with Washington State, and I, I will start off by asking you, kind of our, our standard opener for for state treasurers, which is, "How's your state doing? What's the uh, you know What's the financial position? What do you What do you chit chat about with the re- credit rating agencies? Uh, just kind of give us a, a quick lay of the land for our listeners."
0: Sure, well, it's great to join you, Liz, as, as well. You, you know, I'd say here in the state of Washington, our finances are strong. I mean, we. Just had uh, Moody's uh, reaffirm our AAA credit rating. We have either the number one or number three best funded pension now uh, in the country. Uh, and you know, the legislature has been following our recommendations uh, related to reserves, debt service ratio, um, as well as pension funding. As, as a result, I, I feel like we're we're in a pretty good place, especially compared to some other states right now.
1: We've talked on this podcast a couple different times about uh, baby bonds, which is certainly a topic that a lot of state treasurers have, have leaned into. And uh, Washington state, of course, being no exception. I wonder if you could just walk us through some of your efforts in that area. I know that uh, you've done some studies on this. I know that there's been some legislation to, to try to do the Washington state version of baby bonds. Just give us a little background about, you know, how this came to, to be on your radar, what you've done so far and, and what you're hoping to accomplish.
0: Well, you know, I first learned about baby bonds uh, from Connecticut treasurer, Sean Wooden, it was probably almost two two years ago now, uh, after Connecticut was taking the first look at uh, developing a program there. Uh, Actually, I think I first read about it in Bond Buyer magazine, which is usually not the source... uh, for, for most uh, new uh, policies uh, coming through legislatures, uh, but it certainly was uh, for me. And, and I started thinking, well, why can't we do that here in Washington state? And you know, it's one of the things that we then kind of, in a very thoughtful way, kind of walked through how we could implement uh, a baby bonds program here. It's what we call the Washington Future Fund is our proposal. And uh, we kind of walked through it in a very kind of gradual way. We, we first, as you noted, uh, did a kind of year-long study both on the wealth gap, in the state of Washington, but specifically what would be impactful to actually change course uh, for those who are facing that gap. And it was through that study, we had a lot of community input um, that we were able to put together a proposal that we feel really good about, you know, one that would essentially reserve $4,000 in the name of every child who is born through a Medicaid-funded birth in our state is 47% of the births in our state. But in rural communities, it's even more pronounced. It's about two out of three births are Medicaid-funded births in Washington state in rural counties. In several of our rural counties, it's three out of four births or more than three out of four births. And so, you know, I I did a 39-county tour, started going around the state and and talking about really how this is a a rural economic development tool as well. And that uh, has allowed for us to have bipartisan support for our Washington future fund proposal it's currently with the legislature it has now passed both policy committees in both the house and the Senate and it's now in the fiscal committees and so obviously that's always the biggest challenge is getting something funded but as I like to point out to uh, my my former legislative uh, colleagues uh, that you know we have sent uh, them 1.8 billion dollars in new money in the four-year outlook through investment returns um, and we're just asking that they take a portion of that reserve it and uh, Invest it on behalf of all of those children um, when they're born so that they, those kids would have 25, dollars $30, $35,000 waiting for them when they're uh, later in adulthood to be used for one of three wealth building tools that can either be used to, uh, for educational pursuits including the trades and apprenticeships, to remove some of those capital barriers that exist for licensing fees or to do a pre-apprenticeship program. Those things that often capital barriers limit people's opportunity for any type of wealth creation um, because of those capital limitations. It can be used for entrepreneurial efforts. So it could be used um, for seed money to start a small business. um, And our proposal also allows for it to be used for property ownership uh, to provide that Potential homeowner, the opportunity for a down payment to own property to finally interrupt that generational poverty that often is is uh, exacerbated by a lack of property ownership.
2: Um, the as you mentioned, the initial investment uh, recommends is recommended to be four thousand per child. Can you talk a little bit more about how um, you all arrived at that particular number?
0: Sure, that's part of the work. That was the work of the committee. Uh, you know, when we were first. Thinking about doing it, we actually proposed thirty-two hundred dollars per child, which is what I think Connecticut had done, and hmm. made sense to me. So we, we kind of worked with that. Um, but it was actually through through the process that um, we we did a, a real review of what those funds could look like if we were obviously investing those funds um, and what would be necessary to to really interrupt those those wealth inequities in a way that would remove those capital barriers. And what the committee came upon was we would need to invest about four thousand dollars per child. To actually truly provide the capital necessary to to interrupt that those wealth inequities.
1: For anyone who might be unfamiliar with Washington State, certainly I think a lot of people when they when they think of the state they probably think of the Puget Sound region. And, and you just laid out some statistics and some demographics that sound decidedly not like the Puget Sound region. So when you when you think about that that wealth gap and the as you were saying in some places three out of four live birth paid for with medicaid can you tell us a little bit more about about that population and and the wealth gap you're trying to close you know on behalf of of
0: whom well well you know i know justin we we lost you uh we had you here in washington <laughs> state so we're sorry to sorry to lose you i think you're part of the exchange program because we continue to pull people from the Chicagoland area as well <laughs> but it's uh, uh but no look i i um I think people are shocked when I give that number, I, you know, when I talk about the 47% of births that are Medicaid funded births that are low income, uh, births. And, you know, but I think it's important for us to step back and, and, and realize that it's, there is a lot of wealth in Washington. You know, I was talking about the strength of our state finances and, and, and our state finances are strong. Um, but, but the reality is not, not everyone is benefiting equally, um, related to, to that. And there is a major wealth gap in our state. Actually, I think it's appropriate that, that Some of the leading states related to baby bonds are states like Connecticut, are states like Washington State, states that are viewed as wealthy states, but in in reality have a major wealth gap. And, you know, I view this as critical for our state treasury that we get on the right side of this. Because decades from now, if folks are not equipped for for wealth generation themselves, um, or if we don't recognize the the fact that capital barriers limit people's opportunities for opportunity, for economic opportunity, um, that will foundationally impact our state treasury's ability to be well-funded uh, decades from now. And obviously, there's also just the, the the moral aspect of making sure that that folks have access to opportunities. It's, it's one of the things that's been a focus of mine since coming in as state treasurer is, is to not only do these foundational aspects of our office incredibly well things like making sure that we have strong you know sufficient reserves that we're handling our debt service ratio appropriately and making sure that our pensions are well funded but that we're also recognizing that at least to me foundationally we need folks to have economic opportunity at birth they need to be able to economically thrive throughout their career and they need to have a dignified and secure retirement later in their career and those three things need to be in place if we are going to effectively um Uh, secure our state treasury decades from now. And those are some of the the issues uh, that I'm working on and and why I feel that the issue of baby bonds or or our Washington Future Fund is is so important is that that foundational aspect of economic opportunity at birth.
2: We hear that from... a number of treasurers just the the idea of building building that foundation and and security with baby bonds it's at the at the beginning but with with auto ira systems it's it's that that retirement security aspect and and the your staff has told us that you'll be requesting legislation to establish an auto, auto ira system in washington state so can you tell us a little bit more about that
0: Absolutely. Well, as I was just talking about our, our proposal for the Washington Future Fund and, and having a baby bonds uh, proposal related to economic opportunity at birth, in addition, we this session will be introducing two uh, new pieces of legislation for the legislature to consider, uh, one, related to financial education and requiring that to be taught in our schools. So we introduced mm-hmm. that just like mm-hmm week. Um, and I view that as foundational to that ability to, ha- to economically thrive throughout one's career. Um, and that's why uh, I'm putting forward uh, that legislation related to requiring financial education in our schools. But as you point out, um, that, that third aspect to me is, is foundational as well, which is ensuring that people have a dignified retirement and that they have retirement uh, security. It, it's why we've put forward what is going to be called Washington Saves, our proposal, which is this idea of an automatic uh, individual retirement account for folks. And it's why I spent the last uh, year going around the state, um, specifically talking about and setting up town halls to discuss people's lack of savings and, and lack of retirement savings in particular. And and it's, it's bad. I mean, the, the fact that two out of three millennials have zero retirement savings should be setting off every alarm that we can think of. And it's, again, critical for folks' ability to uh, prepare for future needs that they have. But again, going back to the needs of our state treasury, if decades from now, one of the largest Groups that 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 does contribute to our economy, seniors, right? Um, it, to either don't have revenue coming in to meet their needs. Well, we're a sales tax dependent state. They're not spending money. That that is a major challenge in our state if that were to happen. But then there's the other aspect of that too, which is you know that population would would need, and uh, I think the public would expect social services to be provided. No, no one is going to want seniors without housing or without um, essential food or other other needs that otherwise would come out of our state treasury to meet those needs that are not coming out of our state treasury now because those needs are taken care of through pensions and other retirement savings that people have. Yeah. So, you know, there's a reason Social Security started nearly a century ago, and it was because of the fact the public wasn't willing to accept that, um, that notion of, of seniors not having those essential services. And we need to make sure that folks have the retirement needs now uh, to meet uh, their needs in the future and in, in a way that will secure our, our treasury decades from now.
2: And, and would it be managed uh theoretically by the state investment board the is that the one and the that's the also the investment board that manages the state public pension
0: so our Washington state investment board does manage our, our public pension. you know I guess what I would say to that is that's one of the the final things we're we're looking at uh, as a part of the legislation is is uh, how that how those investments would work. what I will say is We are in a situation now where Washington State, which normally is a leader on a lot of these type of uh, policy issues, is many steps behind other states. Hmm. Um, in putting forward a policy like this. And as a result of that, it's something we're not entirely used to in Washington state, but it's actually a a nice thing to have, which is we can look at other states on what's working or ways that we might be able to just kind of meld into existing kind of consortiums and systems that are in place. And that creates some efficiencies of scale, which help out a lot. And so that is one of the last things uh, we're looking at as a part of our legislation before we introduce it. Uh, But but in either direction that, you know, the idea is simply to make it easy for employees to make it easy for employers and simply allow people uh, to set up savings accounts to uh, that can be professionally invested on their behalf to meet uh, future needs that they might have. And I think that's uh, it's something that I really think we can do this legislative session, I, I think, in light of the success of similar programs around the country. You know, my hope is that we can convince the legislature we're just uh, now joining other states uh, in, in doing the same here.
2: Yeah, I have to I have to agree because I I remember first writing about these back when I was still at at Governing magazine and they I think a bunch of states had passed enabling legislation, but the actual rollout was it takes a long time. And and it seems to I I did an update on this topic recently, and it seems to uh, be kind of picking up speed in that sense for exactly the reason you said there's a lot of there's enough experience out there now by other states and the ones coming on now can can, you know, use that.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we were talking about baby bonds earlier. And one of the things I'm, I'm proud of is, is the work of our Washington Future Fund committee that helped inform and draft our Washington Future Fund or our baby bonds legislation here in Washington, in many ways it has been looked to as a model with with a lot of other states to set up their systems. Um, I think it's only fair that I now look to those states for how to set up uh, our Washington saves program. Uh, but, but it's also what's exciting and vibrant about state treasurer offices. I mean, I think, you know, the, these issues are, are being looked at by, by state leaders and and by state treasurers in particular to address what are viewed as very systemic, large uh, policy questions uh, that exist uh, throughout, throughout our country. And what I think maybe a few decades ago Folks would have looked to the federal government for direction. The reality is, no, no one's waiting for the federal government to act on these these things. Uh, <laughs> you know, in the true incubator incubator model, th- these ideas are coming from states, and and we're refining these policies through states. And, and as they work, I, I think we can further refine them um, to to really find ways to to best serve the the, the public's interest and deal with these very uh, important economic policy issues.
1: So, speaking of challenging systemic policy issues that in this case do require some, some federal intervention. Um, I know that you've been involved in, uh in, you know, in providing some information, some some testimony specifically around the Safer Banking Act. In Washington State was one of the first to legalize recreational marijuana, and several years later now, uh, and several more states having legalized. There's still this question of how the financial services for the marijuana industry can work, given that the federal government is it still has some concerns, and and therefore the. The, the money that moves through that system is in this kind of gray area. Can you tell us a little bit more about that that challenge and how this federal legislation that you've chimed in on might be able to help to address some of those challenges?
0: Well, absolutely. I, I mean, I feel like the it, it's critical that Congress pass um, uh, the Safe Banking or Safer Banking Act. I, I, I have been now talking about this issue for, for over a year since becoming state treasurer. It's one of the top, if not the top, uh, federal policy issue that that I'm advocating for uh here in here in Washington state, uh, as you're pointing out, justin you know Washington state was one of the first, if not uh the first to through citizen initiative to legalize recreational marijuana that was uh, over a decade ago now, and we now have a one point four billion dollar a year industry here in the state of Washington operating mostly in cash. That's nuts. Uh, I mean, that yeah. is just beyond belief. Um, and I don't need to tell any of your listeners how consequential that is. I mean, simply from an accounting standpoint, but but more importantly, um, the impact it has to the workers in that industry, because in, in that $1.4 billion a year industry operating mostly in cash, we have workers who are coming in every day and are facing the risks associated with that. And those risks are, are are serious. I mean, at the start of last year, for the first couple months of last year, we were seeing a robbery a day taking place here in the state of, of cannabis retailers. You know that old saying, right? That you know, what was it? The you know, why why do why do you rob banks? That's that's where the cash is. Uh, well, that cash isn't in banks anymore. <laughs> the cash <laughs> is in the pot. And and that is why you know I viewed it as a major public safety initiative of and why I went to DC and why I've since uh, really worked with other state treasurers to bring folks together and state treasurers in particular around this issue to start uh, getting. Senate support to finally pass the Safe Banking Act. U.S. Senate support, and we've had great partnership with with treasurers around the country. I, I think of uh, Treasurer Young Boozer from Alabama, for example. Um, you know, who's been a great partner since they now have medicinal marijuana coming in. To, to Alabama, I, I reached out to him early in that process, and you know he's reached out to his U.S. senators, and, and they have uh, become uh, supporters of this uh, legislation. We now have sixty votes, be, in large part because of the impact that state treasurers have had in reaching out, um, often to to very conservative U.S. senators on this issue. Especially when you have three out of four states now with some form of legal cannabis, um, it's becoming uh, that much more important that that the Senate act on this issue to finally make it so that. We get cash out of the cannabis industries that those cannabis retailers can finally use banking services, and credit card services, and those things that will create a safer work environment, not just for those coming in, but also for those workers to be able to access rent, uh, to be able to rent a, a location or get a mortgage or those things that often are, are prohibitive or at least in, inhibiting in some way of their ability to uh, access uh, certain banking services personally because of the source of their income.
1: We've talked often on this podcast about state treasurers and how they're interacting uh, in the ESG space, or I guess more specifically, the what we might call the anti-ESG space, or at least the legislative efforts in many states to, to ban the ban or to to have other uh, anti-ESG sorts of legislation on the books. I know that your office has... Your office, I should say, has has looked into this a bit. Is that right? There, you've been, done some research on sort of what those other state bans have meant for, for Washington state. I know that that works ongoing, but uh, what can you tell us about what you've learned so far?
0: Well, what I can say is we're, we're, we're starting to take a look at that. And I, it, look, I feel very strongly that this anti ESG movement is, is really dangerous to kind of the larger economy and and to individual pensioners who are being subjected to it it's it's also foundationally an anti corporate accountability and measure the anti esg movement And that's how i try to frame it as is, is you know the these these issues of looking at material factors environmental social and governance material factors to investments was not a political issue until a few years ago and you know, it's not a surprise that it's a political issue now, the anti-ESG movement, because it's a political winner if you're in a conservative state. I mean, where you can lead a, a, a anti-corporate accountability measure that is being led by corporate interests and refer to it as woke capitalism to rally your MAGA base. Politically, that's winning all day long in those conservative states. And it's not going to stop for that reason. Um, the, the, the problem with it is it is an anti-corporate accountability Uh, measure. It is something that is uh, ultimately paid for by pensioners and state treasuries and the public ultimately through their taxes that they're the ones left holding the bag related to these additional costs that result from this lack of corporate accountability. And it's a real challenge to our foundations of capitalism and, and a workable economy. I mean, if corporations are not held accountable by institutional investors, you know, investors like, like, state treasuries around the country, then those companies are going to run amok. They're going to focus on short-term profits. Those corporate executives are going to look at what can they do in their short time at a company to maximize the the stock price in the short term at the expense of the long-term viability of that company. And for decades, if not centuries, uh, we we relied on the fact that companies were were localized, that that workers and and company leaders cared to make sure that that company continued to exist decades from now. It, It was critical to the entire community. I mean, we had some of those here in Washington State for many years, right? The, the warehousers, the Boeings. I mean, you, you know, these large companies that that were foundational to a local community. And obviously, those are still important companies in our state. But those type of companies existed throughout America, where the executives lived in the same community where the workers lived. So it was in everyone's interest to see that those companies continued to thrive. Well, the the reality is now executives live far from where the companies operate. Maybe you have private equity investment. You you, you have these things that don't really um, foundationally a- allow for. Those systems are set up to not allow for the long-term viability of those companies. And only institutional investors like states or other institutional investors care to make sure that that same company exists with a, over the years, for decades from now. And the only really effective way to do that is to look at those material factors. And those anti-ES, the anti-ESG effort is simply reducing that corporate accountability to make sure that that company is thinking of the impacts to climate change over the years. I mean, look at Lahaina and all the things taking place. If you're an insurance company, if you're not thinking about issues related to climate change, you're not meeting your long-term fiduciary duty to that company. And so the fact that um, this anti-ESG movement is re- reducing that corporate oversight or that long-term focus um, is maybe may in certain corporate executives short term interest to do that. But it's very much the detriment of those those long term, comp- long term operability of those companies. And it, it's critical that that state treasuries uh, around the country are speaking out against this this anti-ESG effort. Because w- w- if we're not doing it, nobody is. And if we're not focused on it, it really is going to undermine th- those companies' viability decades from now, if not years from now, as well as the financial returns to pensioners uh, and uh, taxpayers who are, who are investing in those companies.
2: You know, maybe a week or two ago, I would have wondered why another state's divestment from from a firm that is that has uh, um, ESG that promotes ESG investing why that would matter to Washington State until city announced it was just this last week that it was leaving um, closing out its municipal bond market business um, in the in a few months in, in early 2024. And uh, some of the articles I read did mention the fact that Texas cut ties with City because of its pro ESG investing stance. And Texas is quite clearly a huge part of the municipal bond market. What do you make of of that connection? Um, you know, one state's stance, this very particular stance, and then that that kind of cascading impact. I mean, does does it look to you? Does it seem to you that that's the way that things are going?
0: Well, I can't speak specifically to why, you know, City made the business decision that, that they did. But, you know, I've read those same articles and I think I was even quoted in some of them where they were talking about the fact that that some states had had stopped working with City. Um, as a part of those municipal bond markets, as you just mentioned, you know, obviously, it's important to our, our state, we have very competitive bond sales, you know, as mentioning our Moody's A credit rating, we, we have many bidders on our uh, offerings, you know, that's those competitive offerings allow for us to achieve very favorable uh, bond rates uh, here in the state of Washington. Uh, so, and, and often city has been a successful bidder related to that so so them not being uh, a participant is a problem just because you know more competition is good as we issue our bonds um, but but also since they're often successful it shows that they 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 bid in a way to actually participate in the market in a very significant way so for for I think that that can be an example and that's one of the things we're going to be looking at so you mentioned um, that that it's one of the things our our state is going to be reviewing over the next year. Our state legislature has entrusted my office of taking a review of how some of these uh, anti-ESG efforts by other states might be impacting the larger national economy and and ultimately how it can impact the state of Washington. I mean, the economic trends and economic impacts don't stop at the borders, at the state borders. That's the nature of our economy. I mean, that's a good thing, right? I mean, we are in a a national economy, if not an international economy, that we have to navigate. And it's important that we recognize uh, how these trends. Uh, outside of the state of Washington, can be impacting our state. And, and, you know, to the extent appropriate, I'm articulating that that impact in a way that best serves the interests of the people of the state of Washington. You'd mentioned uh, Washington State's debt issuance.
1: I wonder if we could talk about that uh, just for a second, because there's this interesting, almost kind of conundrum of sorts there. We we often look at Washington State's overall debt portfolio, and particularly unlimited general obligation debt portfolio. And on a per capita basis, it's comparatively high relative to other states, which sort of stands in contrast to your well-funded pensions and and many of the other sources of financial strength that the state has. And yet, you're also one of the, the fastest growing states at the same time, that sort of suggests that there's, you know, a lot of that debt is really financing growth, right? You're having to build out new infrastructure and, and really take the, uh, accommodate the fact that there's, you know, the economy is growing the way that it's growing. When you think about your role as, as treasurer and kind of maintaining that balance between Having debt limit or having having a debt uh, an overall debt portfolio that's manageable for the state, but also accommodating growth. Do you see kind of more of the same uh, strategy that's been employed the last few decades, or would you envision managing debt in a very different way given where you stand today?
0: Sure. Well, you know, since since I've become state treasurer in 2021, our our debt load actually has been quite quite stable. But it but it is significant, as you noted. I mean, we have 22 billion dollars. In debt. Now, that is limited to bonds that have been issued related to our transportation and capital budgets. Obviously, our operating budget, unlike many states, balances every year. Um, so we, we balance our operating budget every year, but we do issue bonds for uh, transportation and capital projects um, and continue uh, to do so. I mean, that, that's, that's pr- primarily how those uh, budgets are, are funded. Um, I guess what I would say to that is what's been important to me is to articulate clearly to our legislature the importance of keeping that debt that had been previously issued manageable. And the best way to do that is to have a debt service ratio, especially related to our capital debt, under 5%. Uh, That I have successfully navigated with the legislature since becoming state treasurer to keep that debt service ratio of our capital debt under 5%, which uh, our office fees to be manageable. And and it's particularly manageable in light of the fact, as you noted, that we have one of the, if not the best funded pensions now in the country. And there is no more expensive debt you can have than an underfunded pension liability. Um, And that is, uh, you know, obviously, uh, it's all part of that balancing almost like a three-legged stool between pensions, reserves, and uh, debt service and how, we, how you handle your, your debt load are kind of foundational to those to the management of those issues. But it's one of the things that, that is important that when you have uh, debt like we've had in our state that it was is about $22 billion when I came into office, that one, we keep that relatively stable, which we have done successfully with the legislature. And, and second, that the debt service ratio remain manageable, which through the work of the legislature we've been able to do by keeping that under 5% uh, on our capital debt debt service ratio.
2: Well, Treasurer Mike Pellicciotti, thank you so much for joining us on the Public Money Pod.
0: Well, thank you, Liz. And thank you, Justin. It's so great to join both of you.
2: Well, thanks again to Treasurer Mike Pellicciotti for that interview. It was uh, we, we discussed, I feel like, kind of a variety of things there. Um, but they all obviously connected to, to kind of the uniqueness of Washington State and some of the, the particular issues that he's he deals with as Treasurer there. Um, we, we touched on the the recent news about Citigroup saying that it was going to exit its muni- municipal bond market business. So I, I wanted to expand on that for this week's Ripped from the Headlines. I pulled a story from Bloomberg about it. And it is written by Amanda Albright, Schuyler Woodhouse, and Nick Quirolo. And it's titled Citigroup's Muni Market Exit Sows Fears of a Wall Street Retreat. And uh, the story notes that for years, small investment banks have been pulling out of the business um, of underwriting municipal bonds, but Citigroup's announcement that it is shutting down its municipal bond division highlights pressures on a corner of finance contending with diminished fees, a debt sales slowdown, and a pushback from local Republican politicians' intent on drawing banks into America's culture wars. So that's a quote from the article. Um, essentially, Citigroup said it just wasn't profitable enough to to stay stay stick around in this business. So um, by in March of next, of 2024, it's gonna be closing down that division. The story notes that it underscores the steady shift of capital away from from the municipal bond business, and that it that lack of the low, reduced competition could make it more costly for local governments to finance infrastructure. Um, and just to give you a sense of how, how big this is, um, and and it was a big surprise to people in the market, Citigroup has been a major force in the muni bond market. As recently as 2021, it was the second biggest underwriter accounting for near- Of roughly 10% of all new securities that were sold in 2022, it underwrote nearly 27 billion in long-term bonds, and so it's this is no certainly no small thing. The story also though alluded to this connection between uh, culture wars, and and it gets into that a little bit later in the story. It notes that while banks have often utilized their role in financing public works projects to deflect criticisms of casino capitalism, Republicans more recently have seized on it to to draw them into America's culture wars. Citigroup was banned from working on muni deals by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who said the bank's policies ran afoul of its law, barring work with those who are hostile to the gun industry. Due to its fast growing population, Texas is the biggest source of new muni bonds, accounting for 16% of overall issuance in 2023. So um, again, the story is not directly saying that Citigroup left because of these things, but it's certainly drawing drawing a line between, between the two and so and it uh, just one more thing to wrap up. It's uh, it quotes Jason Appleson, who's head of municipals at PGIM Fixed Income, who says that this is going to hurt and that people will step up and fill the void in some way, but he doesn't think it's going to be fully plugged. And after reading off those some of those, you know, numbers of Citigroup's market size, I can see why. So this is really big news. What is your kind of reaction and and take on it, especially in light of what what we heard from the treasurer, Justin?
1: Yeah, such an important issue, and I'm glad we're talking about it. We could spend multiple episodes uh, talking just about this issue if we really wanted to, because it, it, there's so many different things wrapped up in it. Two things come to mind for me right away when I when I heard about this, and as we're as we're going through this particular account of it, you know, on the, on the one hand, you're left with the question of how much of this is a, is a city thing versus a market wide thing. You could make a strong case that this is a uniquely city thing that the the getting kicked out of Texas was a particularly painful thing for that firm to go through which it would be for any large firm but it just underscored kind of the the political risk that comes with this and the reputational risk and just the bad headlines that can follow being in this business and a lot of ceos would look at that and say that's just the it's not worth the risk the juice is not worth the squeeze and that might very well be the case with uh, with city and particularly again their, their experience in texas maybe accelerated some underlying trend, maybe uh, forced Mm. a, a broader rethinking or an accelerating of a broader rethinking that was going on. That could all very well be the case. At the same time, you could say that this has been something that's been going on within City for a long time. If you know anything about that firm specifically, they had a pretty substantial outflow of talent, I guess about seven or eight years ago now. And the question of whether to reinvest and, and go out and, and replace that talent has been kind of on the table ever since then. There's no question that they were a very, very important firm, especially during, as you mentioned in that article, the you know during the financial crisis and during some real market dislocations over the last several decades, You know they were more than willing to come in and, and participate in big deals. And, and be a stabilizing force. The question of whether someone else can can play that role is an interesting question. And I guess we'll have to see. Clearly, it's going to be a while before we see the market reconstitute itself in a way that can fill any of those gaps that might be left in the near term. But again, you can argue that that those are all sort of uniquely city kinds of things. And it doesn't say anything necessarily for where the market is or where it's going. If you want to make the case that it is a uniquely city thing and that we shouldn't be too concerned with that, there's a lot of data points sort of in that direction as well. We can look at where the market is today. It's been a rough year, uh, but interestingly enough, it was actually just this morning looking at some of the data that we collect at the Center for Municipal Finance. And this just this morning is the first weekly observation where we see the market for All of 2023 appear to end the year on a positive. We're actually today better off in terms of market index overall prices than we were in January. And so there's definitely been a a real strong upward movement the last few weeks. If that continues, and there's good reason to think that Mm -hmm. that will continue, then it may you know, we might, we might be able to look at this as uh, something again, like a uh, uh, city's reflection having more to do with the last several weeks, months, even years, uh, rather than where the market is headed these days. I think there's a strong case to be made there. So we, it's hard to know, and, and we'll just have to sort of see how it shakes out. But one could definitely make a case that this is a very big deal. and something the market's going to have to deal with. And on the other hand, you could say this was a kind of a uniquely city thing, and we shouldn't get too concerned about what it portends for the market. The one thing I would say That I think a lot of us who follow this market, particularly from the issuer side, that's undeniable and is clearly reflected in Citi's decision, is the fact that relationships between issuers and bankers really have changed over the last several decades. I've heard, I've talked to several folks on the sell side, several senior bankers over the years, and one of the things they talk about is how they believe that relationships with with bankers particularly among larger sort of high visibility issuers have changed in a way that it's gone from being a partnership to being a more in some cases openly hostile kind of business relationship i had a, a senior banker one time told me that the advice that they've had to give a lot of their issuer clients is uh, something to the effect of you know it's okay to be tough on your banker, but don't be rough on your banker. And they feel like there's been a lot more rough relationships, meaning pressing really hard on deals, trying to fight for another basis point or two, all things that you could argue issuers should be doing on behalf of taxpayers. But that has meant that the market, that this business has become very tough and margins have been squeezed for decades now and they're being squeezed even further. Again, if you're a taxpayer, you think that's a good thing. But we also have to think about the Mm -hmm. longer term implications of that and if it means that suddenly there's fewer underwriters there's less expertise there's less bankers who are able to bring interesting ideas to the market that can help to solve bigger problems then the consequences of squeezing this deal for a few more basis points may or may not be worth it and the consequences of that may you know may come back to to hurt us later on. So it really does. It raises all these interesting questions about the sell side of the market. It's a really interesting time to be watching this. It means a lot for issuers. And I think, again, my main takeaway here is that it does raise the question of issuers should be carefully thinking about how they interact with the sell side of the market, because as Citi shows, you can't take for granted necessarily that there's always going to be exactly the kind of support from the banking community that you hope to see when you go to the market. Thanks again to our Season 2 sponsors, Build America Mutual, Munipro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Bernick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Podcast.